Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. The sexual, as we've learned in this series on Seminar 16, is the unconscious. It's what occupies the unconscious, if you will. And what we saw in a couple of our last lectures was Lacan saying that the unconscious as a place of forgetting, of the forgotten, gives way to a desire to know, which then in turn gives way to self-consciousness as false consciousness, and then to individual discourses, knowledges, disciplines, and the like. This desire to know is really important here, because what Lacan's going to now do in chapter 20 is give this desire to know a more truthful tilt, this desire to know as it emerges from a primitive acquaintance with unknowing where it does not know. Check it out here. We were just reading about the phallic function. On the next page, page 18, the desire to know pops up right about in the middle of the page, the paragraph that begins, we are going to see at what other frontiers the drama breaks out. And here he's thinking about the drama of the subject, which we'll come to in a second. But I first want to stay right on point with this connection between the superimposed lacks of subject and other. Notice how Lacan works it at the level of the desire to know. The decisive step taken by Freud about the relation of sexual curiosity to the whole order of knowledge is the essential point of the psychoanalytic discovery. Sexual curiosity vis-a-vis the order of knowledge. Sexual curiosity at the level of a polymorphous, perverse, auto-erotic relation to one's own body. And how that meets up with the order of knowledge. In between, you see a desire to know. And it wouldn't just be a desire to know on the path to self-consciousness. It would also be a desire to know about and within the field of forgetting that conditions this desire to know, this original moment, which is that of the unconscious. It's a desire to know the sexual that Lacan is here queuing up. And it is from the connection between what is involved in objet-a, namely where the subject can rediscover his real essence as essentially lack of enjoyment and nothing more. This is fundamentally what's at stake, is the desire to know when it reorients itself away from self-consciousness and back to the original site where all this got started, namely the unconscious, allows for the subject to discover, to rediscover their real essence as essentially lack of enjoyment, as nothing more 
and nothing less than that impossibility, that void, that foreclosure of jouissance around which the structure of the subject is built. That's what's at stake here. Knowledge of the sexual as familiar, familiarity and acceptance of the unconscious allows the subject to get in contact with what they really are. Not all of the signifiers that represent them, but the lack around which these signifiers of the subject continually orbit, where the subject can rediscover his real essence as essentially lack of enjoyment, the absent center of subjectivity, and nothing more. Whatever representative he may be designated by subsequently. That's key here, right? No matter the S1s that would later come along and designate the subject in the field of the barred other, what's at stake in the desire to know when it reorients its course and sets a chart for the unconscious is an ability to understand something other than the subject's relation to these S1s. S1s as unary traits, but also S1s as master signifiers. The phallus is a signifier that puts us on this path to what we truly are, namely, lacks of enjoyment and nothing more. But notice this sentence goes on. And it is from the connection between what is involved in objet-a, and then we've just been working through this clause that he adds. But if you subtract the clause we just read about, about what the subject essentially is, and read it in connection with the second part of the sentence, notice how this sounds. And it is from the connection between what is involved in objet-a and the field of the big other, on the other hand, insofar as the knowledge that is the horizon of this domain, forbidden of its nature, which is that of enjoyment, is organized in it. Here, if we subtract what we know about the subject as essentially lack of enjoyment, we can ask about what is involved in objet-a, symbol of lack for us and how it connects to the field of the other. Insofar as the knowledge that is the horizon of this domain, so the desire to know, points to the same knowledge that is at the horizon of the domain known as the barred big other, that is forbidden in its nature, so we're talking about sexual knowledge, which is that of enjoyment, jouissance being what is excised from subject and other alike is organized in it. And that's the important part, I think, here. Organized in the field of the barred other. With it, the question of sexual enjoyment introduces this minimum of diplomatic relations that I would say are so difficult to sustain. This is the real challenge. How to access knowledge of the sexual vis-a-vis -vis the field of the barred other in which this knowledge is organized as barred? Lacan's answer, you better be hella diplomatic. Diplomatic relations 
that are difficult to sustain. This would be a diplomatic subjectivity, one that can somehow navigate in the field of castration, in the field of the barred other, some ability to access, acquire, and embody sexual knowledge. Thankfully, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, we have a word for this a register of human experience that allows this fragile diplomacy to find expression. The word for this is drive. The drives have been a leitmotif in this chapter, and it's not a coincidence that between the paragraph we were just studying and the one that we're now working through, there is this very suggestive turn towards the drives. Let's check it out. In between the riff on the phallic function and the riff on the desire to know that we were just reading is this very curious passage that begins the turning point. The turning point from which the birth of a neurosis emerges is what? It is the positive intrusion of an autoerotic enjoyment that is perfectly typified in what are called the first sensations, more or less linked to onanism, however you want to describe it in the child. Onanism means masturbation. And if you think back to the biblical figure of Onan, why does this guy wind up in so much trouble? Basically because he masturbates without impregnating someone else. And the someone else makes it even more complicated. Because if I'm not mistaken, it's like his dead brother's wife or something. And God, the gods, punish him because instead of impregnating her, he masturbates and his seed is spilled on the ground instead. Presumably this is not a metaphor where some seeds fall on fertile soil and otherwise. That's some New Testament stuff. This is something different. But there's a primal masturbatory relation that the child has to its own body. Here captured in this word onanism, it's an autoerotic enjoyment that is characteristic of infancy. Okay, this is the polymorphous perversity that you can read about in Freud. The important thing is that it is at this point Here's another emphasis on point here. There's the turning point, and now we're at this point. For the cases that fall under our jurisdiction, namely those that generate a neurosis, it is at this precise point, at the very moment, that this positivization of erotic enjoyment is produced. That correlatively there is also produced the positivization of the subject as dependency. So what you have is an experience of enjoyment, erotic enjoyment. I don't think we should technically use the word jouissance here, but an experience of bodily autoeroticism that is occurring at the level of infancy, pre-speech, is what infancy means, right? And at the very same time, they're being produced something else, atop, alongside, in conjunction with this, also produced another positivation of the subject as dependency. 
as dependent on what, we might ask. The next word, anaclitism, as I said last time. Childhood bodily functions that get mobilized, drawn forward into sexual drives at the level of adulthood. Dependency on the desire of the other. Anaclitism might be the great word to capture how this would work. Childhood bodily functions being, should I say, sublimated? Reduced by extension to sexual drives in adulthood? We'll see. Here there is designated the entry point through which the structure of the subject becomes a drama. And that is the drama that we just heard about, the drama that breaks out, that gives us this desire to know. It's a drama at the center of which, at the precise point of contact between the subject as dependent on the desire of the other and the subject as an embodied organism with access autoerotically to its own parts. So you have, in other words, the organization that we just heard about at the field of the other, in which jouissance is prohibited, forbidden, absolutely beyond the bounds of society. And then you have the disorganization, the organ relations, pre-organismic relations, you might even say, that the child has with themselves in infancy. The drives, Lacan is here suggesting, allow for a mediation between these two. This is that drama that gets played out. These are the delicate diplomatic relations that you see operating at the level of the drive. Now, in Freud, you can see drives splitting into two groups. There are those that can be integrated, sublimated, and brought to the fore. And then there are sexual drives, drives that can't be integrated, that in turn get repressed. The drive is the spectrum between these instruments, between these organons, these means by which the desire to know, namely to access and to implement sexual knowledge, are drawn out. We are on the cusp of answering one of the basic questions here in Seminar 16. What is the relationship between the structure of the subject and the structure of the other, between the barred subject and the barred other? This, as you heard me say, is precisely what's at stake in our third diagram, where S1s double as unary traits and then can be refigured as master signifiers. Traces inherited from family kin, society, the big other, via various S2s, that can then be effaced by the subject as something proper to the subject's function, rendering them as master signifiers, signifiers that stick out from the barred other and invite the barred other to grapple with them, whether to leave outside and thus remain radical or to integrate and thus introduce these master signifiers back into the cycle of S1s as unary traits. Underneath all of this, though, is the barred subject and the barred other, 
If you look at diagram three, that's what you see. And there's a lozenge in between, which raises the question, the question that I think we're right on the cusp of here. What exactly is the relationship between the barred subject and the barred other? All right, let's slow down a second and see if we can keep hold of this thread. Think back to what Freud tells us about choice of love objects. You just heard me use this word, anaclitism. It pops up here in chapter 20. It pops up as well in the previous chapter. Lacan is on top of it. We should be as well. Let's slow down and see if we can ramp up to his argument by way of this concept. So Bruce Fink has a bunch of great work. And this two-volume set against understanding, check this thing out. It's fire. In there, I believe it's in volume two, he gives us a really clear account of the distinction between two basic Freudian approaches to love objects. The first is narcissistic. Here is where you choose to love someone who resembles you. Love in this moment would be a confusion of self with other. Partner equals me. There's your narcissistic love object. The alternate, though, is anaclytic. Here would be the choice of a love object, the choice of a partner who reminds us of a primary caregiver we had as children. Love dangerously here would be propped up on need. Love would be based on a confusion of the partner with a pre-existing ideal image that we developed as children. The partner would here be equated with mother, father, etc., whomever was your primary caregiver. Bruce Fink has this really nice riff here, though. Because love would be based on an object that is fundamentally different from me, however, it would threaten to leave me feeling like nothing and worshiping the partner as everything, feeling like a nothing relative to their everything. This is a danger that comes with anaclytic love. Now this all and nothing business, topologically speaking, we know this pretty damn well. Nothing has to be left out, preserved as excluded, for any totalizing operation to lay claim to everything. Is everything packed? Why, yes, it is. Turn the car around. You left nothing out. You left nothing at home. You've heard this joke before. I won't go over it again. <clears throat> Perversion is key here. And it's no coincidence that in Seminar 16, when Lacan brings up anaclytic relations, it is in the context of perversion. In perversion, my fantasy is that the other needs me as nothing in order to be my everything. If you want to start playing with this idea of anaclytic love around perversion, as Lacan invites us to do in 16. This is exactly what he's up to around anaclytic relations. 
His reading of anaclitic relations in 19 and now recalled here in the passage we just heard in chapter 20 is about the support the subject takes in the big other, in their dependency on the desire of a barred other. And for Lacan, this dependency is straight up mythological, fantastical. Why? Because no body can be everything whole, complete, etc., no matter how many multitudes they contain. That one's for all the Whitman fans out there. Part and parcel of the fundamental fantasy, and not just as experienced by the neurotic, all of this is. The fundamental fantasy that the neurotic has is that the other exists. The fundamental fantasy as it's adopted in the clinical structure of perversion, as we've heard in this series, is that the other can be made to exist. The clinical tilt of anaclitic love is toward perversion, with the making of the big other to exist. And the fundamental fantasy that perversion sustains, not that the big other already exists, but it can be made to exist. And think about this. It can be made to exist as whole and as everything if I do my part and play my role as nothing well. The nothing that conditions their everything. Think back to our work with set theory, containers and thing contained in series on seminar 14. This is a complete delusion in which the true and irresolvable status of the big other as the barred other is masked, covered, concealed, and obscured. These are all terms right out of chapter 19 here in seminar 16. To such an extent that the all-and-nothing relation of anaclitic love is thought to be primary. That's the confusion here, is that the pervert thinks that anaclitic love and the anaclitic relation of dependency of all and nothing is actually primary, fundamental, primordial. Notice how Lacan puts this. This is from chapter 19. The child is supposed to long for his paradise in some maternal physiological environment that, properly speaking, never existed in this ideal form. This is a quick and nice way to answer the question that I hear all too often. What was there before castration? What was there before the symbolic? What was Eden like before Adam and Eve got ejected? And so on and so on and so on. Here's the point. Properly speaking, that shit never existed. Straight out of Seminar 16. Mommy, Daddy, an institution. Lacan even throws out a desert island. Fuck Eden, he's talking about a desert island. He knows what he's doing here. Any of these big others can play the part in the pervert's anaclitic staging of the barred other as whole, complete, Edenic, in short, as the big other. So it doesn't matter what your object choice is. 
mommy, daddy, some institution like, I don't know, the military, the academy, total institutions work well for this. And even Lacan says this desert island, I love this, even a desert island can play its part as an other to be made whole in the anaclytic staging that is the pervert's relationship to the love object. Hence what you just heard me doing with anaclytism. It's also a fetishistic practice where adult sexual arousal is derived from objects that one once was exposed to as an infant. Interestingly, and especially tactile exposures at the level of touch before the field of vision was fully and precisely developed. This is often autoerotic stuff. It can result in self-stimulation, for instance, using infantile objects. Sometimes, like with most perversions, you can see the neurotic flirting with perversion. So the neurotic who enjoys being spanked sometimes. This is a kind of anaclytism. The neurotic who might enjoy um, a bit of bondage every now and again. It doesn't make them a pervert. They're flirting with the structure of perversion, but they're doing so in an anaclytic way that suggests this anaclytism approach to fetishistic um, experience. But here's what I would suggest. It can look autoerotic when the subject is achieving self-stimulation using an object from infancy. And I'll let you guess as to all the objects that could possibly be used from childhood experience for self-stimulation. We don't need to get into the details of anaclytism as a fetishistic practice. The point I want to make, though, is that this is not autoerotic. I would call this alter-erotic, from the Greek notion of other. You could even call it heteroerotic, from the notion of difference. I like alter erotic better. Anaclytic love is alter erotic. And if there's a hetero component in it, we could say that it's heteronomic. And you can start toying with these ideas. Heteronomy is the opposite of autonomy. In, for instance, Kantian thought, the heteronymous position is one where you are dependent on some other order, some other series of laws, unlike autonomous positionality. It's from the Greek auto meaning self and nomos meaning law. To be autonomous is to be self-legislating. You make up your own rules when you are autonomous. Being heteronymous means that you are subordinate to, subject to, the laws read the desires of a big barred other. But the object relation suggested here is not exactly autoerotic, where you would be touching yourself, perhaps, as we heard in the example from chapter 20 of infantile autoeroticism. Here it would be alter-erotic, because there is an other object here an object from infantile experience, whatever that might be, that's being brought into your sexual arousal. It's alter-erotic, not autoerotic, and it's heteronomic, not autonomous.
Because it's by way of objects other than ourselves, there's the altar part, and it's as objects, not subjects, for another's enjoyment that we get off. And here's the hetero part. The reason why anaclitic love is fundamentally perverse is because it's by way of objects that are not us, props, if you will, that we supplant autoeroticism with alter eroticism. And it's by reducing ourselves to objects, from subjects to objects, for another's enjoyment. We are the object very close to this piece of shit that can be put back into the anus of the partner. It's as an object for someone else's enjoyment, hence heteronomic enjoyment, that we get off in the field of anaclitic relations. So again, we're slowing down. We want to make sense of this stuff in a very careful way because the stakes are high here at the end of Seminar 16. Isn't this precisely why Lacan contrasts anaclitic relations to the barred other and all their perverse delusions of dependency, paradisical return, completion and wholeness, in short, with the return of jouissance to the barred other? Isn't this why he contrasts all of this anaclitic, fantastical stuff with, remember the passage we heard in chapter 20, onanism. The contrast of anaclitic relations with onanistic relations is key here. Onanism, you heard me say, means masturbation. True enough. Onanistic relations are relations to oneself, not as an object for another's enjoyment, but as a barred subject. A subject whose real essence, we just heard in chapter 20, is a lack of enjoyment and nothing more. That's what's at stake in onanism. And not just in the field of infancy. More precisely, it's passed beyond the field of infancy, where onanism can do this work of allowing us to be barred subjects, living out a relation to, a being with, our real essence as lack of enjoyment and nothing more. This latter part is the stake. Anaclitic relations, that's not what's at stake here. The drama that gets played out between anaclitic relations, where we find ourselves dependent on the desire of a barred other, and onanistic relations, where we find ourselves in autoerotic touch with ourselves, that's the drama of neurosis, according to Lacan here in chapter 20. So it is worth us talking about, but it's what happens with the onanistic relation that gives us something new. Again, we're slowing down. We're going to take our time with this. So let's just break it down as clear as we can. Imagine two columns. On the one hand, you've got anaclitism, and on the other, you've got onanism given what we've just heard about each. Anaclitism is alter-erotic, for reasons we just discussed. Onanism, qua masturbation, using your own body to affect your own body, is auto-erotic. Anaclitism is heteronomic, we just heard. 
onanism, I would suggest, is autonomic, referring here, of course, to the notion of autonomy. Anaclitism is a kind of monotheistic perversity. The anaclitic is a defender of the faith, a crusader, someone who believes that God can be made to exist. Think back to some of our previous lectures. Onanism, though, is more suggestive of the polymorphous perversity that Freud assigned to infantile eroticism. And think about the word polymorphous here. Poly meaning many, and morphous from the word for shape. Many shapes and forms of the autoerotic relation we have to ourselves in onanism. But anaclitic relations are monomorphous, we might say, and in a theistic fashion. Anaclitism, in this sense, is strictly organized. But onanism, if we think to the passage we heard from chapter 20, is a dis- or pre-organized state. It's It's essentially disorganized. I like that, as opposed to strictly organized. In anaclitism, the body becomes an organ alone. And crucially, for another. In onanism, we have, and I hate to say it, a body without organs. A disorganized body, a body without organs at all, not yet organized, and for itself. That's the thing here. The being of the anaclitic is for another, but the being of the onanistic is for itself. In anaclitism, let me be clear, The body is a means to the end of someone else's enjoyment. That's why it's perverse. In onanism, the body is, hear me now, a means without end to my own enjoyment. And if we want to move that a little bit further in the direction of the drive, as I damn sure think we should, you can have others and objects in anaclitic relations that yield surplus enjoyment. And you can have selves and openings in onanistic experience that would yield real enjoyment. But let's put a pin in that last one, because I'm not sure we're going to be able to substantiate that claim. But if you've got these two columns in mind, we can now start taking some next steps. And you know what? Let me just remind you again of this cat Onan from the Old Testament. And I'm talking straight out of the book that also gave us Adam and Eve. Need I remind you what happened to this poor fool in the Old Testament? He disobeys his father's command to instrumentalize his sexuality. The father commands Onan to instrumentalize his sexuality. In other words, to make it the means to the biological end known as reproduction. And again, here, the kinky part is that the father is commanding Onan to do this with Onan's dead brother's wife. Check it out. I'm pretty sure that's how the story goes. 
And what does Onan choose to do instead? He defies the commandment of his father and chooses instead to, quote, spill his seed on the ground, resulting in what the New Testament would celebrate as stray scatter. Here, the stray scatter is a punishable offense. Instead of placing his seed in his dead brother's wife, I mean, think about just how fucking whack this sounds, at the commandment of the father, he instead chooses to basically ejaculate on the ground. And because it's the Old Testament, you know where this is going. God kills him for this shit. Bringing Onan to the ultimate biological end that awaits us all. Whether you procreate or not, namely, death. So what's the lesson here? Why, of all terms, is Lacan choosing onanism instead of just saying masturbatory, for instance? The lesson here that we get from the story of Onan is you better damn well accept the social, familial, and tribal fact that your reproductive organs are just that and nothing more, organs for reproduction alone. Sounds awful, right? You know, it's useful for us, however terrible this sounds, because it's tough to imagine a more suggestive allegory for the Lacanian theory of castration. What's lost is not your capacity to reproduce when symbolic alienation occurs. That's what the image of castration would suggest, right? The metaphor, if it's literalized, suggests a cutting off or removing of one's testicles, and thus with it, an incapacity to reproduce would result. But that's not what's up here. What's lost in the field of castration is not your capacity to reproduce, as the image would suggest, but instead your capacity to enjoy your body, well beyond your swimsuit zone. And here's the key part, without purpose to enjoy your body without purpose, not as a means to some end, biological or otherwise, but as a means as end, and even more extreme as a means without end. Purposiveness without a purpose. The truth of autoeroticism. This is what the know of the father and the name of the tribe that you're ordered to carry on prohibits and typically on punishment of death, even if only symbolic. This is the lesson that Onan teaches us, which brings us to the main claim. What is the function of the symbolic phallus? We heard Lacan say, the symbolic phallus, as the capital I with the O in the middle, if you like, it's the signifier of this loss and our ensuing experience of lack as barred subjects caught up with an equally barred other. This place where jouissance is forbidden to self and society alike. The symbolic phallus, the phallus in question here, as a signifier, it designates this place where the lack that I sustain and maintain 
throughout my life as a bard subject. And the lack we see in the bard other intersect, where they touch, where the prohibition against jouissance in self and society alike touch. Doesn't this also bring us to the core question of Seminar 16? The very question that our third diagram in this series, despite all our emphasis on S1s that are inherited as unary traits, effaced as master signifiers, is designed to pose. What is the relationship, again, between the barred subject and the barred other? We are again right on the cusp of being able to answer this question. Preliminary answer. There is a reciprocally constitutive lack of enjoyment that the barred subject shares with the barred other. Jouissance is not just prohibited to all who speak, as we've heard Lacan say in other, in other spots. It's also forbidden to language itself the symbolic, the big other. There is no universe of discourse. We heard at the start of Seminar 16. We can now start explaining more precisely why. Because speech events and linguistic structures alike are premised on a mutual, shared, intersectional evacuation of enjoyment. The symbolic phallus designates this superimposition of lack in the system of the barred other and the system of the barred subject. And it marks this lack, this superimposed lack, as an inner limit, a void, or a constitutive possibility around which each system is built. Were it not so utterly lost and missing and subtracted from both systems, we might say that the symbolic phallus is the master signifier of each. But that's not the conclusion that I think we're arriving at here. The conclusion instead is that the symbolic phallus that is in question here in chapter 20, it marks the place at which these two systems touch. Or in a word, the point at which their intersectionality is revealed. And I would suggest that it's precisely here, between the barred subject and the barred other, corporality and logic, that the drives take shape in all their polymorphous surrealist operations. Recall our third diagram. It looks like this. You've got the barred other and its avatars, subsets known as S2, as discourses, as specific knowledges, disciplines, uh, familial systems, and the like, that then distribute a series of S1s as unary traits that are then internalized, identified with, at the level of the barred subject. The barred subject then has the opportunity to transform those traces, to efface those tracks, and to repurpose S1 as a master signifier. Think the transformation from Anthony to Tone, and from Tone eventually to T-Money and the like. Here, 
the S2 that is a subset of the barred other has the choice of either accepting that S1 turned master signifier or rejecting it. If it is accepted, S2 widens to include, in this case, tone, and tone then becomes able to be redistributed as a unary trait to a new split subject. This growth would also impact the barred other. The barred other would now have access to a new signifier. It begs the question, though, represented by this lozenge here, this edge structure or this opening between the barred subject and the barred other. What exactly is this opening? What we have suggested is that this opening somehow puts us on the track of the function of the phallus that Lacan is working with here in chapter 20. And if we were to add that function to what we have here, I think it would look something like this. Here is our symbolic phallus. Here's the system of the barred subject and the system of the barred other coming together in this moment. And the barred subject and the barred other both suffer from excisions of jouissance, hence the minus j here. The subtracted jouissance that the symbolic phallus symbolizes allows for some sort of an opening to emerge here between the system of jouissance qua subtracted, the system of the subject as barred by the subtracted relation it has with jouissance, and the barred others system which suffers the same fate. What you have here is this strange space in between the systems where the only image that comes to mind here is perhaps that from the classic mid-1980s film, Back to the Future. If you haven't seen this one in a minute, you've got to check it out. If you haven't seen this one at all, I'm incredibly envious of you because I can't go back and unsee that movie. I can't go back and see it for the first time again. You can, though, without having to go back at all, right? Because your first time would be in the future. Check this movie out. It's called Back to the Future. The reason why I bring this up is because if you take a close look at what's happening here, this starts to look like, and don't think the chemical formula for trimethylamine, for those of you that read The Chattering Mind, think of this as the flux capacitor. Do you remember the flux capacitor? It's this thing that Doc imagines, envisions, while falling off a toilet and bonking his head. And he gets this vision that comes to mind, and it's the technology that allows for time travel. If you look closely, though, at the flux capacitor, you have these three lines of light that look like they're all flowing into a center, but they do not connect. Instead, there's this dead zone this empty space, this opening between each of the three vectors, here representing each of the three systems. 
the system of the bard, other, the system of the bard, subject, and the system of jouissance as subtracted from both. The symbol of this opening is also where I would like to suggest the drives start to pop up. In this subtracted space marked by the phallus here in chapter 20, the word we have up to this point is not that of symbolic phallus. When the drives start to get involved, the drives that do such a good job of maintaining diplomatic relations between barred subjects and barred others, when these drives start to occur, the key term is not phallus, symbolic, imaginary, positivized or subtracted, but little a, And that's what I would also put in this place. In place of the symbolic phallus, what we see when the drives are operationalized is obja, as some sort of a meeting place, an intersectional zone between the systems of barred subject, barred other, and jouissance subtracted from both. Little a here is the symbol of a multifaceted experience of lack and multifaceted in three basic ways. There are openings, there are objects, and there are interspatialities between these objects and openings. So as we augment our third diagram, what we need to think is obja occupying this spot here insofar as it is the centerpiece for the drives. And I think we need to take a second to talk about this. Much as I'd love to just sit here and continue discussing Back to the Future with you. Um, no. The agenda we have is that of the drive. Again, this kind of subtle underlying motive throughout uh, these later chapters in Seminar 16. Because I think that with this expanded diagram three, with the flux capacitor edition, I think we get to say something new about the drives. Once we allow for the drives to work at these three intersections, what we know from chapter 14 in seminar 16 is that Lacan following Freud says that something is satisfied with the drive. Mit dem Trieb. He's taking this right from Freud's German. What, Lacan asks, is satisfied with the drives. Mit dem Trieben. This is Lacan's question. The answer is not sexual knowledge. The answer is not sexual enjoyment. The answer is not the sexual. That is not what is satisfied with the drives as Freud is understanding their usage here. Namely, not satisfied when the modality of the drive is sublimation, which is what Lacan was working with in chapter 14, and how we got an understanding of the drive as leveraged for surplus enjoyment, namely by way of sublimation. When the sexual goal of the drive is deflected, turned away from, 
when the subject is diverted from that sexual goal. When the drive is zielgehemmt, diverted from its goal, as the drive so often is. When the drive via sublimation is diverted from its sexual goal, but still satisfied, the type of satisfaction that we have is at the level of the object, of the commodity, of the purchase and its possession, be it a piece of candy or a pricey work of art. And we have a name for this kind of satisfaction. We call it surplus enjoyment. Here is our grello. Here is our little sleigh bell, our shiny object with a piece of shit rattling around inside. Thanks, of course, to the gap between the shiny exterior of the bell in which we can see our own reflection and the unidentifiable piece of shit that is contained within this shiny shell. Be it a piece of metal, be it a rock, be it a bean, we don't know what's in there, but it's something that rattles around within the shiny exterior of the grillo. And you'll recall that this gives us a new way of thinking about objea, not in the very classic Lacanian sense of from the symposium forward, Socrates as a crusty old box with a shiny treasure agalma inside, but instead as a shiny exterior with a piece of shit inside, with a crusty something or rather inside instead. It's the new image that we're working with here. Here also we have that figure of the vacuole that pops up in Seminar 7 and really takes focus here in Seminar 16. The vacuole as a storage compartment in a plant cell that can more or less be full of, I don't know, you name it. This is how vacuoles work. We've been over this. This is review. So I won't spend much time rehashing all of the structural work we did and the diagram work to show how vacuoles and grillos are shaped and all this kind of stuff. You can imagine it even if you haven't heard the earlier lectures in this series on these two images. Here, of course, is the field of the barred other, in which little a designates an opening, a hollow, a hole in the other. This is what we learned from the vacuole. If you think of the big other as a plant cell, and then you have this hollow in the middle that is the vacuole or the storage compartment in which things can kind of rattle around, you have an image of the big barred other in which A designates an opening or a hollow or a hole in the structure of the other, but also, as we've learned, an object, slight, shitty, and otherwise, that can rattle around inside this opening. And so we arrive at a definitional ambiguity that is constitutive of obja, object little a. It names lack qua opening, but it also names object as lost. Lost objects and found openings, you heard me say earlier in this lecture, obja names both. And this is its constitutive definitional ambiguity. There's more to this, though. As you've heard me say, the dialectic 
at the core of objea is in fact a trielectic. Think about it. There's the opening, there's the object, and then there's the space between the edge of the opening and the object that rattles around inside it. A minimum amount of irreducible distance that allows the bell, the guelo for instance, to ring, to sound off. So you have this shell that is the bell, you've got the piece in there that rattles around, and then you've got the ever-shifting space between the piece of shit inside and the edge of the bell that allows for the noise to emerge. So what you have here at the center of objea, definitionally speaking, is in fact three elements. An opening, an object, and the space that's ever-changing but nevertheless always present between this internalized object and the opening that marks it, that conditions it as an internalized object. Lacan's little a symbolizes each element in this trielectic. Lack, lost object, and the distance between each that is required for their existence as distinct though reciprocally constitutive entities. And that last part is important. The loss that we sustain and the lack that follows creates a relationship between lost objects and lacks endured, openings that result from excisions that is truly reciprocal. You can't have the opening unless something is excised, cut out, a scrap, a remainder, a piece of flesh pulled out is what gives us the opening known as the wound. And it's tempting to think which came first, the object or the opening. The truth is they're reciprocally constitutive entities. The object as lost emerges at precisely the same time as the opening known as lack takes shape. Which is why I think the trickiest element of this montage, this four-part surrealist cluster known as the drive, is its so-called object. When we designate this object with little a, and here think the diagram of the drive, where you have little a, arrow comes out, goes around, circulates, and then comes back to the source, this return trajectory that is the bizarre archery metaphor we get in seminar 11 and was so important to the work that we did on the drive in our series that followed. When we call this object little a, we mean to designate this tripartite structure between opening, object, and the distance, irreducible, between each that allows them to look distinct, though, as we know, they're reciprocally constitutive of each other. This tripartite structure is a logic, is an operativity. It's a function that we see being worked out whenever the drives are put into motion. So, for example, the oral drive, 
And let's just think very basically about how this works. The mouth as an erogenous zone, as an opening, is conditioned by the loss of the breast in the process known as weaning. When the breast no longer shows up to fill the mouth, the mouth emerges as an opening, notably one that can be closed. And the breast now takes shape as an object, and not just any object, a lost object. And in order for that object to be lost, it has to refuse to come back to the opening. And in order for that opening to be found, it has to be unfilled. The object remains lost for the opening to be found. And then this third element of minimum irreducible distance between lost object and found opening. You feel me? We can go on. The anal drive. The anus emerges as an opening, an erogenous zone, insofar as it continues to drop shit from its cavity. Shit has to go away, has to be flushed down. The process of potty training is just that, allowing, ideally, for the child to embrace and accept the distance between their shit in the toilet and the anus attached to their body. They have to let go of the shit, and in exchange, they get to find and hold on to, if you will, this erogenous zone, this lower mouth on the human organism. This becomes even more apparent when the drives shift from the field of demand to the field of desire. And you can think about it this way. On the side of demand, you have the oral and the anal drives. In the oral drive, the child demands the primary caregiver's attention by crying, let's say, for instance. And the breast shows up, for instance, and so on. But remember that this is an adult, presumably, interpreting the child's cry as bring me food. In other words, taking that expression of need and figuring it at the level of language, transforming it, in other words, into demand. A demand is a need expressed in language, as we've learned in our previous series. The same is true at the anal stage, except now it's the grown-up, the primary caregiver, issuing the demand to the child. Shit. Period. Ideally, it's a period. Sometimes it's an exclamation point. Watch out for those exclamation points. Whenever prohibition is involved, beware the exclamation point. The goal is to keep it 400. Cool, calm, collected, and consistent. And that involves periods, not exclamation points. But anyway, back to the side of desire. The drives on the side of the desire of the other, not the demand of the other, but the desire of the other, as what's left of demand after need has been met. The scopic drive, the invocatory drive, here we see those three elements very active and alive whenever these drives are operationalized. The scopic drive. Oftentimes we think that 
the scopic drive has as its object the gaze. That is incorrect, and Lacan is explicit about this. The scopic drive has an opening. It's driven by the eye that opens. And this is an opening in Seminar 16 that profoundly is spoken of as an opening that marks a slit in the scene. And I don't want you to hear this as S-C-E-N-E. This is seen as in what you see when you open your eyes. The opening that the eye signals when the eyelids part is effectively a cut in the environment, in the umwelt, the world around the seeing subject. The gaze is typically understood as the object lost or otherwise. This is the positions in the environment from which I might be being seen. Here in the scopic drive, you have the opening that is the eye, and that's the erogenous zone, and then you've got the object typically understood as the gaze. What I would suggest, though, following Lacan, is that what actually motivates the scopic drive, what actually causes it to turn around, is not the gaze, but the space between the position from which I see my eye and the position from which I may be being watched, namely the gaze. It's that third element, the space between the found opening and the lost object, that gets the scopic drive popping. Isn't the same true for the invocatory drive? Here you've got the ear as the erogenous zone, as the opening. And then you've got the voice of another that presumably travels from their interior, their respiratory vascular structure, up through their voice box as pressured, poof, out comes physics, baby. Out comes sound waves. The materiality of the voice travels and enters my erogenous zone. This is why speech is so intimate and why it's so central to psychoanalysis is that you have a reciprocal intimacy that happens when someone has a conversation with you. Because their words emerge from within them as air constricted, shaped, and sounded out from their interiors. And it travels through the space between their exteriors and yours and yet what happens, unlike what you see with your eyes, what you hear with your ear actually, physically, really enters your body. You see, what I see with my eyes is a representation of something that always remains outside. But what I hear with my ears when you speak to me, whether from very far or whispering up close, is your actual voice, something that came out from inside you and then enters me. At which point in the conversation, we switch roles. Now I speak, and out from my interiors, and so on and so forth. This connection is exactly the intersubjective logic of blowing bubbles that we talked about in the field of the drive when we were discussing this. I'm going through each of these four basic drives, and we could just keep going, to really illustrate and drive home the fact that there are always three elements. The drive is a trielectical machine. You might even think of it not as a trike, but as a trielectic, a trichelectic, if you will. There's an object, 
an opening, and then some space between. A lost object, a found opening, and then the minimum irreducible distance or difference between these two entities that allows them to appear distinct. Here we are again, right? 1 plus 1 equals 3. What the drives allow when we hop on these trielectics, when they are properly activated, in other words, by this I mean when they are not partially and temporarily being used to plug our holes with sublimated commodities that momentarily close the gap between our lost objects and our erogenous zones, resulting in surplus jouissance. In other words, when we put the drive not on the path towards surplus jouissance, as we've defined it in this series, but instead on the path of what I call real enjoyment, at the level of the body, at the level of the singular experience of having a body, yours and yours alone, we get something different. Instead, the drives teach us how to be with these three elements. The drives know how to be with them. Quoting from chapter 13 of Seminar 16. Their savoir is not a savoir-faire, but a savoir-être. You can hear Lacan working this out in chapter 13. It's not a know-how-to-do-something, the way that surplus jouissance is always instrumentalizing at the level of sublimation the drives. Instead, it's a knowledge of how to be, not how to do, but how to be, alongside, in the midst of openings that are our own, always already found on the surface of the body, Objects that are lost, conditioning the discovery of our openings. And then the space in between. What's at stake here, I would suggest, is another with the drive structure. Not a doing with mit dem Trieb, as Lacan appropriates from Freud, but instead a being there with the drive and its three partite elements. In the drive, when on the trail of real satisfaction, real enjoyment, it conditions a mit structure, a with structure, that has to do with being with, not doing with. The drive is no longer an instrument by which to do X, Y, or Z, to acquire this, that, or the other object. The drive is a means by which we sit with openings, objects, distance. Openings that can't be filled and instead are enjoyed at the level of their capacity to be opened and closed, operationalized. Objects that can't be found and definitely not substituted, replaced with all the commodities and all the shiny bells that we find ourselves purchasing. And then also with the space between and around these found openings and lost objects. The word for this is not Freudian. 
the best description we have of this experience, of this new being with, being there with these openings, objects, and spaces between, it comes from Kierkegaard. But not surprisingly, like all of Kierkegaard's great insights, they find best conceptualization in Heidegger, who all too frequently refused to give the citation where the citation was deserved. Heidegger's structure of mit da sein, being there with, so accurately and well described by Kierkegaard, who's one of the first great theorists of the differential relation that Lacan would appropriate and use as his, the basis for his theory of language, gives us a new way of thinking the with structure of the drives. It's no longer a mit dem trieb in the Freudian sense of doing something with the drives instrumentally. It's now a mit dasein, a being there with. You see, when the drives are instrumentalized as a means to the end of surplus jouissance, they're never anything more than organons. But even here, in moments of instrumentalization, their other with structure is present, even if only latent. And that's really key here. Even when expending ourselves, or as Lacan puts it, opening our purses to do something with the drives by way of sublimatory engagement with commodities in service to surplus jouissance. Even here, we see something else. This other with structure, this being there with is present, even if only latent. I quote, from chapter 13. What the Freudian discovery puts forward is that one can be with it without knowing that one is with it, and that to believe oneself more certain by being wary of this being with it, to believe oneself to be elsewhere in a different knowledge, means one is fully in it. This is what psychoanalysis says. What is the type of knowledge Lacan is here referring to? The type of knowledge with which we are always already sitting, even and especially when we believe ourselves to be elsewhere, is sexual knowledge unconscious knowledge, knowledge of the point in each of us where knowledge itself fails. The desire to know that Lacan returns to and recuperates, redeems even, in chapter 20. I said it's not a desire to know at the level of self-consciousness. In other words, to know thyself, this kind of classic misconception of what psychoanalysis aims towards. The Delphic maxim of know thyself is not the horizon of analytic theory and technique. The desire to know here is more akin to the desire to be with the place where knowledge fails, to be with the unconscious, to be with the sexual. The desire to know 
that Lacan is queuing up in chapter 20, in other words, is a desire to know this failure of knowledge and to be where this knowledge is lacking, where knowledge itself is lacking, and all we see at most is a failure of knowledge. What does it mean to be with this knowledge? It means being with the knowledge of ourselves as nothing more and nothing less than this lack, this failure. A lack which, technically speaking, we share with the barred other, namely a lack of jouissance that Lacan in the very next breath tells us is the essence of split subjectivity, is the essence of what we are is a lack of jouissance and nothing more. To be there with our own lack is an experience that Heidegger named best as Mitdasein. And it involves living out the drive, not as a means to some end, be it surplus enjoyment or some other partial manifestation of jouissance, but instead as a means without end. And that's the riddle that we have at the end of chapter 20. It's the riddle of the drive. What does it mean to live out the drive, not as a means-turned-end, and certainly not as a means to some other end, but as a means without end? The drives are circuitous, we know. The drives are repetitive, we know. They are, in fact, means without and thanks for listening to lectures on the con stay tuned for more episodes soon a big shout out to the artist jerry paper for our podcast theme music <laughs>